Well, here we go. I think there's only really one way to start the podcast, which is to say that this one is going to be a long one and it's going to be a a real deep dive into what just happened over the weekend. Welcome to Beltel Rugby, uh, Adam McKendry in the host chair this week. I'm joined by Jonathan Bradley back from his bougie trip to London. Bougie? What was bougie about it? Well, you went for an extra day, which I consider to be bougie because yeah. you just decided to spend an extra day in London. I was going to say three hours stuck on a EasyJet flight at Aldergrove Airport was uh, was far from bougie. <laughs> you got caught in Storm Isha or something? I did, yeah. So I landed at the wrong airport, first and foremost. I say the wrong airport in the sense that it was still in Belfast, so I was fortunate in that way, but it was not where my car was. So, uh, ah, you weren't off to like Copenhagen or something? The, <laughs> the pilot did originally say, we're going to try landing in Belfast International Airport instead. And if we can't, don't worry, we can go to Paris. <laughs> I'm sure half that plane was thinking, yeah, no, try the other option, please. <laughs> I would say the half of the plane that did not realize that they would have needed their passport to get off the plane in Paris would have thought it was grand. Did you have yours? I did not. I was traveling on my driving <laughs> license. So, uh, so personally, I didn't fancy it. So very lucky that you are actually back for this week's podcast. Uh, otherwise, I could have been doing this solo and people would have been subjected to an hour of just me rambling, which would have been an interesting podcast, but also probably not yeah. a very listenable one. Probably what your family had during the game, I suppose. Well, my my family went down south for the for the weekend, so I got a call from my dad on Sunday. He was like, "Did you watch Ulster?" And I said, "Yep, we're not talking about it." <laughs> so, um, of course, yes, we we are of course going to get stuck into the the meat of what was the weekend, which was Ulster's forty seven nineteen hammering at the Twickenham Stoop. Uh, we'll also look back on the Champions Cup pool stage as a whole. Look ahead unfortunately, to the Challenge Cup, which will be coming up in April. Maybe take a look at the general state of Ulster as they head into what is now going to be a very long break uh, going into the Six Nations. Uh, And maybe a bit of a look at the Champions Cup format as well after what is a very interesting knockout draw, which has pitted a lot of teams against familiar opposition, will we say. But all that to come up after we start with events at the Stoop at the weekend. As we said, 47-19 winners were Harlequins. Johnny was there, as I mentioned. And Johnny... First of all, what what was kind of the atmosphere around the ground is what I want to know first because I've seen reports from people on Twitter saying that a lot of Harlequin fans were laughing at how easy it was and there was a lot of, there, there was a real sense of, you know, sort of by the middle of the second half or even early in the second half, there was just sort of a sense of nobody really cared anymore because it was so obvious what way the game was going. What was your sort of take on how the game like progressed from that sense? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but there was an awful lot of fans around the press box who definitely were laughing at what Ulster were doing, um, whether it be getting horribly bounced in tackles or making a horrible mess of bouncing balls. And I suppose you're always struck at English grounds, obviously how it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is. Like, it's not a league that they follow, so I'm always struck by how little you are see they obviously watching therefore don't know the players um, so you have an awful lot of the crowd uh, being haha numbers whatever let's say in in this instance 14 um, you know they're all calling the players by the numbers and mm. laughing <laughs> laughing at mistakes being like did you see what what whoever just did there um, yeah so there was definitely a lot of that especially with the two 
line entries, which were comedic in a bad way, I suppose, <laughs> if you're looking at it from an Ulster perspective. Um, black comedy, possibly, would be the way to describe it. Yeah, from I mean, an Ulster I, perspective. I, I was laughing, but not in a I'm enjoying this kind of way, I'll say that much. Um, and then, yeah, the sec- I mean, the second half, once Danny Kerr scored, Quinn's had their bonus point. There was obviously, if you were really in tune with the permutations, there was the fact that Harlequin's points difference was going to come into it for them. So they were... I suppose they didn't actually improve their points difference because both both sides scored a couple of tries thereafter, didn't they? Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't that the game was over when Danny Kerr scored because of that points difference piece to it, but um, the idea that it was a contest and you can always tell, you know, you can always sense that in the crowd when the energy goes out of a game because it's already decided. And like once Ulster conceded that fourth try, you know, they weren't coming back, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> We'll we'll sort of take the game in stages because I think you have to if you just sort of look at the the game as, as a whole. I I think there's too much to kind of try and digest in in one sitting. Um, for me, I'm I'm going to start with the first half and say I actually thought Ulster played okay in the first half. Like the the the, the thing is, you look okay at the, in what sense though? Oh, like def, define okay. Because so okay, I okay. suppose what you're really talking about is that possession and territory. But they were, I mean, they're te- they were terrible with their possession and territory. Yeah, so. They commanded possession, they commanded territory, which is sort of part of the the, the start of how to get yourself into a game. You, you need to have possession, you need to have territory. And from that regard, Ulster were doing quite well at controlling things from that perspective in that they were holding the ball in the right places, they had possession. Now, they were absolutely dreadful when it came to doing something with that possession and territory. And I was going to kind of like try and lump that in with what happened in the second half because things did not improve after half time but they were at least putting themselves in the right positions of the pitch and therefore you could do something from there as i said absolutely dreadful with the ball when they had it but the tries that they conceded were not defensive mistakes it was they switched not not system mistakes system mistakes the first one they switch off which is criminal the second one they uh, switch off, which is criminal. <laughs> and the third one, Robert Balakum makes a, an awful mistake going back for the for the bouncing ball. So systematically, yes, in the first half, like I was sitting there at halftime thinking, Ulster are 21-7 down. And yes, they haven't done a lot right. They actually haven't done a massive amount wrong in terms of systems. They've just, for some reason, in the biggest game of their season, decided to switch off for three tries. Why Why is a team unable to be switched on mentally? Especially in the early part of the game, you know, there is absolutely no reason why Andre Esterhazen should be able to take that quick line out. Like, Ulster should have at least one guy covering off the potential of a quick line out, if not two. It's not like you're late in the game and heads are going and someone just forgets to hold that line you're early in the game why is the first thought of one of your wingers not I'm going to stand on the five meter line here and stop this from being taken like the the mental mistakes in the first half were just utterly utterly shambolic yeah well I asked Dan Soper he did the he did the post match that very question like how can you be how can you switch off how can you not be how can you not be switched on for your biggest game of the season and he said Basically said, if he had the answer, then obviously they wouldn't. It wouldn't have happened. Um, but it's uh, 
there's so much focus, and we'll come on to that later, but there will be so much focus on the coaching ticket after that. But Stuart McCluskey called the defence against Toulouse for some of the tries schoolboy. And that was before the Harlequins game. Before the Harlequins game. Mm-hmm. Which has to be the most schoolboy Ulster showing that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like, there's always, you're always wary about recency bias whenever you're talking about this kind of thing. But I can't remember seeing a side ship seven worst tries. Like, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you'll see whenever you're covering the school's cup mm. this weekend. And like, school's coaches would be upset to see their team mm-hmm. switch off in that way. So professional players doing so in the biggest game of their season, it's confining. I was I was going to get on to that later on, but I suppose now that you've mentioned it, we'll, we'll say that. What does that say to the mentality of this team? That in the biggest game of their season, they are conceding such sloppy tries. Like even for Linus' first one, they switch off because they think Marcus Smith is just going to take this slowly and he's just going to kick this down the touchline and we'll reset for the line out. There doesn't seem to be a single person aware to the fact that he could tap and go this. Now, look... Well, it, see, by all accounts, they should have been because by well, all accounts, there was an awful lot of time spent during the week looking at this very type mm-hmm. of thing that Harlequins do this mm-hmm. because this isn't the kind of thing where Smith looked up and was like, oh, nobody's paying attention. They do that all the time. And they'd already done it earlier in the game where they tried to run from deep. Whenever Nick David was actually Sinbin, they tried to run it from deep with 14 men. Like It's it's not like they weren't even pre-warned during the game, even if they hadn't done the midweek research. It had already happened in the game and they just weren't aware of the fact. It, it, just, it, it is just bizarre to me that a team cannot be switched on to one of the most mercurial playmakers in the entire Champions Cup and the fact that he might do this. Like, yeah, I mean, 100%. Like it's, uh, it's very hard to know what it says. It, it doesn't say anything good, but it's very hard to know what it says because... Personally, I find it unlikely that players aren't working hard enough. I just find that unlikely because at the very base level, everybody know everybody wants to do their best, right? That should be a given. Everybody has had to do their best to get to this point. That's a given, especially where these guys are as professional sportsmen. But even in just a survival instinct way, everybody should know that they're playing for their careers, whether they're playing for more money in their next contract, whether they're playing for the added recognition that comes with test caps, whatever, whatever, whatever. Nobody has any reason not to be working hard enough. So I find it very unlikely that that's the case. So what does it say that a team goes out in their biggest game of the season with the carrot of a place in the last 16 just for winning. You know, it wasn't like this was a a Hail Mary thing. Like all they had to do was win the game against a team that were already through on a ground where they won on their last three visits. For all the problems that they had against Toulouse, for all the problems with the draw, for all the problems of not getting to play Cardiff, all they had to do was win this game. And it was played like things that would have shocked you to see in pre-season. So where where does the fault lie then? Is it with the players? The fault lies with everybody. This is the thing. Everybody's very keen to say, 
oh, if we change X coach, then everything will be fine. Or, oh, if we just had somebody better than player Y, everything would be fine. Or <laughs> if we secede from the IRFU, <laughs> ply our own furrow, everything would be fine. Jeepers, that's not, not start a Brexit debate in this <laughs> right now, okay? But the reality of the situation is if you are consistently achieving below the sum of your parts, which this team now has been, I would argue, essentially since they lost the semi-final to the Stormers. Everyone goes back to last winter. I think we can... Or I would put forward the theory that they should have won the ERC whenever they lost to the Stormers. And that set them on a different track. Not doing that has set them on a different track. And I don't think they've been the same for two years. You can go back over the last 30 games and they've won 15 and lost 15. So it's very easy to say, and it has become the sort of prevailing narrative of, oh, we don't know what Ulster team's going to turn up. They're so inconsistent. And people can say that without watching the team or without delving too far into it. But if you're talking about a team that over the last 30 games has won 15 times and lost 15, 15 times, then that's exactly, you know, the numbers back it up. What people are saying almost as a, I suppose... You know, it's what people used to say about the French team in the Six Nations. It was a, a laziness to the punditry. Sometimes whenever people talk about teams being inconsistent. But in this case, the numbers bear it out. Like, they are just an inconsistent team. An inconsistency doesn't speak to problems with the ability of the playing squad or the ability of the coaching staff because they can do it. We're talking about a team who three weeks ago beat Leinster and a week before that beat Racing. Like, for whatever you want to say about the limitations stopping this team being a team that regularly wins silverware or a team that is up there with La Rochelle, Leinster and Toulouse, and those things exist, those things are in play. But we're not. that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about a team that isn't in the top 16 teams in Europe and can't have any complaints about it on the basis of the performances. Like we talk about, you know, we talked about the draw last week. We talked about how good Toulouse are last week. We talked about the formats of the competition last week. But like Ulster got zero points from three of their, you know, three of their four games were 5-0 um, match points divisions. They conceded seven tries <laughs> in two games in a row. Like nobody within Ulster can have any complaints that they're not in the last 16. Just, just to add to that, actually, Ulster conceded 22 tries in the pool stage. Cardiff were the only team that conceded more. They conceded 24 they, in the whole competition when they won it. Yeah. They conceded 147 points over their four games. Only Cardiff conceded more. So we've, we've complained about Cardiff being the worst team in the competition. Statistically, yeah. Ulster were the second worst. Yeah, so um, everybody that's complaining about the seedings of uh, Harlequins and Toulouse <laughs> and Bath are saying... You know, they're not saying, well, those guys got to play Cardiff. They're saying those guys got to play Cardiff and Ulster. Yeah, but but bear in mind that, you know, Cardiff got three points out of this group. You know, if Racing had come back to win that game at Ravenhill, even if Ulster had held on to their try bonus point and got a losing bonus point, they'd be out of Europe altogether. Like, we're, we're talking about the fact that they got one win 
is what's put them into the Challenge Cup, let alone getting them into the Champions Cup. Well, it's a complete failure to maximise your points returns. Like, Munster had a bad pool stage, especially given their opposition. They only won one game. But how many points did they get? Nine. Yeah, so that's nine points off one win. Mm -hmm. Ulster, as bad as I thought they were against Bath, and there was pushback against that with an awful lot of people saying, oh, if you knew what you were looking at, you would see how close we are. But as bad as I thought they were against Bath, they were still in a position to get a point from that game. Or two points from that game, maybe. They were mm-hmm. definitely in a position to get two points from the Toulouse game. They, again, as bad as they were against Harlequins, still could have got a point from that game. If you do that, that's another four points. Yeah, and Ulster are through regardless of what Rassing had done against Cardiff. Yeah, would so. you, like, would, in, in those instances, we're just talking about how you finished games because those were opportunities that were there for Ulster in the last you know, 10 minutes of the Toulouse game, the last 10 minutes of the Harlequins game, and I suppose to be fair, the last 20 minutes of the Bath game. But yes, obviously they could have lost against Racing. Things could have gone worse. But if you look at the opportunities that they had to get more points, like I really think five is the minimum return of what you would have been expecting from the positions that Ulster find themselves in, even late on in games. Do we think that this is an accurate reflection of where Ulster are as a team right now? It's an accurate reflection of how Ulster are playing. It's not an accurate reflection of the playing squad that they have, the facilities they have. I don't think it's... The budgets are a bit cloudy, obviously, in terms of you know how much each team actually spends, but I don't think it's where they should be in terms of budget either. Mm. There's a fair point that you make... And I mean, even if you look at the Six Nations squad that's just been announced, Ulster have six players in there, which is obviously not ideal for what they want. They, they want to have a few more in there, maybe maybe a couple more forwards and, and a, another back or something like that. But a team with six Ireland internationals in it, theoretically, aligned with Stephen Kitchoff, who is a world-class loose-head prop, and we, we've had the discussion of... You know whether he's a he's a marquee signing in terms of what Ulster need in particular. Um, you've got a decent player, and and Dave Years is one of your other NIQ players. This team should be producing more. Like I, I think you are right whenever you say it's accurate for how they're playing. But you look at the squad that Ulster have at their disposal; they should be. I mean, they, they should at least be competitive against the two English teams, and. They've been hammered out to get by both of them. They've should be look Toulouse are superstars. Like they are going to be one of the best teams in this competition for the entire duration, and there's a very good chance that they're going to go and win it. But you'd like to think that Ulster could at least push them so that there's some jeopardy in the late stage of the game, rather than you're just pushing to try and get a bonus point at home. Like it's well, I mean that th- that point was made last week. Like Ulster have played teams who are as good as this Toulouse team in the past and beating them. Whereas it didn't really feel like, you know, again, to use Stuart McCluskey's words from midweek, like they didn't fire, it didn't feel like they fired a shot against Toulouse really. But when when was the last time you had one of those big nights in Europe where you really felt like, oh, that's, I don't know if maybe I'm, I'm not really feeling the Racing game because Racing were so poor on the night, but... 
See, it, I, I think I think Rousing's the perfect example of what you're talking about because that was it. Top of the top 14, high spending. But, like, yeah. you, you know, you can go back, like, wins against Claremont, wins against La Rochelle. You can go even further back, you know, mm. wins against Stade Francais, Toulouse themselves. Like, big French teams have come and been beaten on the night because Ulster finds something extra on the night. What they're now doing, or what they're doing at the minute too often is not finding that something extra mm. because they're actually playing too often they're playing below themselves rather than above themselves which is what you would have always relied upon in those big european nights and i think we probably did get it, did get it against racing to be fair remembering that that was a game coming off three straight losses that we didn't really expect them to win because they were playing so badly in the or sorry we thought they were playing so badly in the preceding games they maybe didn't necessarily think that um that's fair enough i, I suppose i'm i'm kind of a bit, a bit sullied because Racing themselves had such a poor campaign. Like even even on Saturday, like the, they actually started really poorly against Cardiff. Cardiff scored after about five minutes, and I was like, "Hold on a second, are we jumping the gun here?" But uh, yeah, that that's kind of that's kind of made me sort of reevaluate the Racing game a little bit more because at the time it was a good win. Then I, I like I would argue that that's not fair because I think. Um, we see that quite a lot after Ulster beat big French teams where, like, we can maybe even sometimes do it ourselves where, like, you know, you see the team sheet and you're like, oh, Ulster going to have it, have it uh, hard work of this. And then Ulster beat them and then there's this re-evaluation of, oh, well, they're like, they weren't that good anyway, you know. And um, the Toulouse game, what would that be, 2017, 20. The 38 no one? Yeah, like, that's, that's the perfect example of the one where... Um, wouldn't even have been as late as twenty seventeen. That's the perfect example of one where you see the team sheet and everyone was like, "Oh, Ulster are going to get hooked here." <laughs> and then afterwards, it's a it's a reevaluation, not of Ulster but of the opposition. That was December twenty fifteen. Fifteen. That's uh, almost nine years ago. Good grief! Nick Williams played in that game. Um, what did you make of Dan McFarland not being the one to do post game? I don't think it's particularly good. I don't think it should be encouraged at any time really I think it's an interesting part of the way that some rugby teams seem to operate and it would be completely anathema in other sports like you know we've had a <laughs> had a conversation not too long ago about you know I'm a massive Spurs fan but I don't know what the Spurs assistant coaches voices sound like beyond Ryan Mason and that's from whenever he was a player or the head coach, you know, the acting head coach. Interim coach. Yeah. Um, and it's just because it is a given that the head coach or, you know, in football, the manager does a pre-match bre- briefing and a post-match briefing. No matter how long it takes, no matter how many broadcasters there are and always does the written press, it's a completely foreign thing. And, you know, it's even more, or even more pervasive in American sports where, you know, whether it be baseball, it's always the manager. In the NFL, it's everybody. Mm, yeah. <laughs> All of the coaches. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, to me, and obviously, like, naturally, me more than anybody else has a vested interest in this. <laughs> to me, if you're talking about 15 minutes twice in your week, like, I don't think it's that big a thing to do. 
And I think it sends out a bad message because like I know whenever I wrote the Dan Soper piece and I think fair play to um, Dan Soper for doing it under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like an awful lot of the response to that was why is this Dan Soper and not Dan McFarlane? So it sends a bad image to the fans. Like it's not, I'm very wary that this could come across as like, journalists complaining about being a journalist and which obviously nobody has any interest in but the fans want to hear from the head coach mm. especially when he doesn't do TV because I don't my understanding of it, of it is that there wasn't because obviously they were going to another game that there wasn't the requirement to do TV correct I was fortunately I didn't get to go over but there was no Ulster post game interview um, look, I, in a Past life, still with the Beltel, I used to do a few Irish League games and purely because of location, I was sent down to Glenavon quite often. And whenever Gary Hamilton was manager of Glenavon, he had Chris Lindsay as his assistant. And now it's, it's helped that Chris Lindsay is a very good speaker, but any time Glenavon won, it would be Chris Lindsay who would come out and do it. But every time Glenavon lost... Gary made a point of being the one to come out and do the post-game interview because he felt he needed to be held accountable for the fact that his team lost and the buck stopped with him. And I completely agree with you. I think it's a really bad image for Dan McFarland to send someone else to do post-game. Now, we don't know if there was a legitimate reason why he couldn't do it. And if there is, then, you know, we are happy to hear it. But I personally think that whenever a team loses... In particular, it should be the head coach that fronts up and takes the questions because I think it's I think if they lose that sort of sorry to cut across you sorry if they lose that sort of game like I can understand if an assistant comes out every so often after a URC game at home when they've won you'd rather it didn't happen from a copy perspective because it's no disrespect to the guys you know Johnny Bell is a European Cup winning man of the match in the final. Mm player for Ulster yeah. Ireland International um, Dwayne Peel whenever he was here was a, li- a British and Irish lion mm-hmm. but when things go awry people expect the head coach to answer the questions yeah like like we should we should stress you know like, Bell Soper Grant they're good talkers like this, this isn't a slight on them as individuals or as <clears throat> you know, coaches or anything like that. It's nothing to do with that. It's just purely, personally, I think whenever a team loses, and as you say, particularly in a game where your Champions Cup season has just ended and you've been hammered for the second week in a row, conceding some very comical tries, it should be the head coach who fronts up and takes those questions. Yeah, it should. I suppose maybe one possible theory is the fact that, you know, I think McFarland, rightly or wrongly, was criticised for speaking too truthfully after defeats in the past. This was obviously a bad defeat, and I think maybe it could be that. Like, then, and, then, then, you, then you tell the head coach to well, no, absolutely, rein it in. There also like, could be a perfectly legitimate reason, but I suppose. If there was, then you should be telling the people that are there so that they aren't having this conversation on podcasts or whenever questions are being asked on social media about where the head coach was, that they have an answer, you know? Absolutely. Because if if we knew the reason why Dan McFarland 
didn't do post game, if there was a legitimate reason why he couldn't do it, then we are we are going to be the first people to hold our hands up and say that he he couldn't do it, so therefore we had Dan Soper. But until then, you know, the head coach should be the one stepping up and doing the interview. Um, but yeah. Rather than asking the attack coach about the seven tries that they considered. <laughs> so uh, I suppose now you look at what is to come then and I know we are a long way away from it but we have to address it now because Ulster are dropping into it it's Challenge Cup time again and uh, Ulster are going to be going into a competition for the second time in what four years which is not a good record to have second, second time ever second, second time ever <laughs> but second time in four years and the first time ever where they completed pool stage as well it should, uh, should, should be noted because I think people forget almost that the fact that they ended up in the Challenge Cup the last time was because they got beat by Gloucester away, but they still had Gloucester to play at home. And they, sh- they well, you talk about criminal losses like that Gloucester away game was horrendous. But yeah. um, I, I was going to say that's kind of the caveat of last time they were put in without even without having a let's say a fair shot of yeah. completing the pool stage and at least trying to get into the knockouts of the Champions Cup, but. Ulster now in the Challenge Cup. It's going to be Montpellier away on the weekend of the 5th, 6th, 7th of April. We already know that the features write themselves. A certain Mr. Pinar spent some time in Montpellier. Uh, we'll address that closer to the time for sure. Johnny, you've written a column today and I'm going to let you talk about it uh, more than I will. Is it a good thing if Ulster were to go on and win the Challenge Cup. And I'm not presuming anything because we're not going to say that Ulster are going to win the Challenge Cup and then this is going to be a walk in the park because there's every chance that they could end up being in South Africa. There's a good chance that they could come up against one of the other teams that dropped down from the Champions Cup, which is going to be a test in itself. But if Ulster were going to go on and win it, would this actually maybe be a blessing in disguise? No. Um, winning it is better than not winning it. That's obvious. Mm. But this idea that Ulster will drop down and find their level and that'll help them kick on is a nonsense. There's no historical basis for this theory. Like none of the teams that have won the Challenge Cup have gone on to make an impact in the Champions Cup. In fact, it's the reverse. Teams that used to be good tend to fall into the... uh, Challenge Cup and win it, you know, like Claremont have won it, Toulon have won it, teams that have in the past mm. been giants of European rugby, but it's actually indicative of being on a downward spiral because you have to be, you have to have had a fallen status to be in it in the first place. So this idea that an up and coming team wins the Challenge Cup and it's the first stage in their uh, metamorphosis into a team that's going to challenge at the top level is just a nonsense. Like, it's not a development competition. It's a second-tier competition, and there is an important distinction to be made there. Yeah, I'm just looking at the the list of winners, and you go back there, as you say, Toulon, Lyon are a team that just sort of seem to be mired in that middle tier. Could get relegated this year. Could get relegated this year, but also you feel like at some point they could just go in an absolute heater and win the top 14. Like It feels like they're one of those teams that's always like wobbling between we're about to go and become a, a relegation-threatened team every season, or we could be 
challenging for the for the title. Um, as you say, you've got Claremont, you've got Bristol who have declined dramatically. You've got Montpellier won it in twenty twenty one. They've been on the decline dramatically. He did. Montpellier did win the top fourteen after winning the Challenge Cup. They're the only sort of outlier, mm. but their top fourteen title is more of an outlier than them winning the Challenge Cup was an outlier. Yeah, you've obviously got Cardiff in there who, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, are no longer any kind of force. Stade Francais at the end of their sort of peak. You've got Montpellier again. Um, The only real, like, standout outlier is obviously Leinster in 2013, whenever they had a particularly bad season. Obviously, Leinster, Leinster, they've gone on after that to dominated both in the URC Pro 14 uh, Champions Cup. Yeah, but they, like that Leinster team was coming off three Heineken Cup titles in four years. Mm. So that was the end of a good Leinster team. That wasn't the start of the next good Leinster team because the start of the next good Leinster team should have had this conversation over the weekend because this would have been a good point to include in this column. <laughs> the start of that Leinster team came in bad Champions Cup campaigns. You know, they got beat in that game against Wasps, but there was the genesis of the next Leinster team. Because you learn more about yourself in the Champions Cup than you can ever learn in the Challenge Cup. Like, also could win the Challenge Cup just by beating teams that aren't as good as them. But they're not going to have the yardstick. They could also end up losing away to Montpellier. They could lose away to Claremont. They could lose away to the Sharks because it would involve a South African, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, the, That's the, the other thing. Winning is obviously absolutely no guarantee. As we saw the last time they were in this competition because they lost to a not exactly vintage Leicester team. Yeah, the, the path to... A potential final for Ulster is obviously they start with Montpellier, then they'll face the winners of Claremont versus the Cheetahs. So it would be in Claremont if Claremont won, it would be at uh, Ravenhill if the Cheetahs won. It's likely to be the Sharks in the semi final. And then I, I admit I'm trying to do a bit of predicting here, but it looks like it's probably going to be Gloucester or Sale in a potential final. They look like the two strongest teams in the bottom half of the draw. Connacht are also in the bottom half of the draw, so they could maybe do something. But it Connacht seems in a more... knockout game. Hmm. <laughs> are Connacht becoming Ulster's Leinster? Are Connacht becoming Ulster's Leinster? In the sense that Leinster are no longer Le- Ulster's Leinster, is that what we're saying? No, just in terms of like in, in recent years, it feels like every time Ulster come up against Connacht that they're going to lose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, st- the stats don't bear it out, but it does feel that way, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but as, as we say, there is absolutely no guarantee that Ulster are going to do well in this competition. You know, like going to France in the first place is going to be a tough try, even though Montpellier are having an awful season. They're propping up the top 14 and they're not the side that Ulster faced even back whenever they faced them in the Heineken Cup pool stages. What was that back? That was almost 2013, 2014, back it then. Was before like, uh, I started in this job because I watched it on TV. I remember sitting in the old wooden press box at Ravenhill that they hastily put together while the main stand was being built and getting absolutely drenched at one point that night and just hating life uh, even though Ulster were winning that game um, so it, so this side this is a new trip for me so there is some uh, some benefit to this whole thing you wrote in your column today that there's no way to dress this up as, as a good thing for Ulster and we have sort of said that is there anything that they would be able to take at all from the Challenge Cup or is this just kind of like you've now got to 
fill these fixtures. Like, is is there anything to be said for getting a few games that might lead to wins late in the season that you can try and get a bit of momentum going towards the ERC playoffs? Or am I really clutching at straws here? No, I think you're clutching at straws. I th- I think people are even overlooking the fact that winning in France twice in the space of seven days is going to be a big ask. Mm-hmm. Do you even want to win this competition? Like, if if we get if you're to- in it, you have to win it because if you don't win it, as we saw a couple of years ago, it becomes this: they couldn't even win the Challenge Cup. Thing. Yeah, but but if you're Ulster, you know, do you? I don't want to you say know, tank do, or do throw you, it, but do do, uh, do you send do you send the Esquires to France? You know, like do you do you try and give guys like Ruben Crothers, Jude Possibly at Joe Hopes, Scott Wilson, like do you, do you sort of say we don't actually want to be in this competition? So let's let's put all our eggs in the ERC basket, and if you guys go and do something remarkable in France, let's let's celebrate that. But we're not actually overly bothered if we get knocked out here. I just think the the cadence of the season means that you don't really want to do that because you can end up then with a very you end up with an awful lot of weeks off, I suppose. Um, you just want a trip to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, isn't it? Well, that is, again, <laughs> like, you know, everybody's talking about the benefits of the Challenge Cup. Like, I mean, also, we're never going to get to the Champions Cup final. So that would be cool for me to do, you know. <laughs> um, let's look for the positives where we can. For Ulster as well, I think one of the things that is overlooked is They've also lost out on potential home gates here again. You know, they've lost out on some potentially lucrative European ties. Now, the Champions Cup also probably would have been that because if they did get in, they were going to be 15th, 16th seeds at, at best. But, you know, you're now looking at it's more than likely going to be away games throughout the knockout stages to get to the final and even if you do manage to get a home tie because another low seed manages to scrape their way through are you going to get the big sellout that you would have got if you were in the Champions Cup quarterfinals? Absolutely not. So, Well maybe if it's the Cheetahs you can sell it as the fact that it's possibly Ruben Pienaar's last ever game. Ruben Pienaar's homecoming? Ruben Pienaar's homecoming but his last ever game at the Ravenhill where I can say arguably it should have been, but like, I mean, the, the, the has been playing on for so long. <laughs> the the only way that Ulster can potentially get a home tie in either the quarterfinals or the semifinals is if the Cheetahs beat Claremont or if Zebra beat the Sharks and then also beat one of Edinburgh or Bayonne. Neither of which I think either of us would say is very likely, unless as we say, either Claremont or one of the other two teams, or one of the other three teams decides to do what I was suggesting, which is completely throw the competition and decide we don't really want to play in this. But it will be interesting, I think, to see what Ulster's approach is. You know, our, will will we get to April and it'll be all guns blazing, we do want to win this? Or do you sort of treat it as an added bonus if you do something in this competition? I... I think they might just fall somewhere in the middle and say, you know, the URC is our priority, but, you know, if we can put out a team like this. So, like, I, I feel like if you get to, say, the Montpellier game and the likes of Ian Henderson or Stephen Kitchoff or someone like that is carrying a knock, it's like we maybe don't risk them for this game. Whereas if it was a Champions Cup knockout game, 
we would play them. I wouldn't underestimate the fact that the Montpellier game is going to be the next game that we most likely see a full-strength Ulster team, though, because you can't see them bringing the full squad to South Africa just after the Six Nations. I think the Six Nations players will get a break, and because Ulster are in South Africa for two weeks, I think that means you're probably without them for two weeks unless they fly them out for the second game of that doubleheader. Just on that as well, by the way, you know, you're talking about finances. If Ulster end up away to South Af- to a South African side, there's a massive financial cost to that. Like, obviously, you could say that that could have happened in the Champions Cup, but the rule is that you can't play a semi-final in South Africa in the Champions Cup, isn't it? Oh, I didn't know that, actually. But I don't think, or as far as I can tell, it's not in the rules of the Challenge Cup that that's the case. Um, like... I have it on good authority that like Ulster making two trips to South Africa last year cost them essentially the value of a yearly contract for a pretty good player. You know, <laughs> going to South Africa is very expensive. It's not something you want to do if you could avoid it. Now I understand that, like, yes, just where the way things have fallen. Obviously, they could have got through in the Champions Cup and been facing that kind of thing because the Bulls are at home, the Stormers are at home. You know, but. Um, it's just an, another thing to think about, I suppose. We'll have to look up that rule about the Challenge Cup and whether you can play semi-finals in South Africa. Um, I I would be surprised if you could. Um, oh, sorry, it's it's in the Champions Cup. So if uh, if a South African team is the higher seeded team in the Champions Cup semi-finals they have to play in England um, because they are not shareholders of the EPCR. Um, so as non-shareholders, the semifinals have got to be based in Europe. So that is why the semifinals cannot be uh, held in South Africa. So yes, yeah, so if Ulster got through to the semi-finals and face the Sharks. I, it sounds like it would be more than likely the game would be somewhere in, in Europe. Uh, I know the Bulls here have said that they would uh, they would play at Ashton Gate in Bristol. So I would imagine the Sharks have probably designated a venue somewhere in, in England or may, maybe I, I know uh, the Cheetahs played in, in Italy, so maybe they might designate an, an Italian venue for that, although they EPCR might want a a bigger venue just in terms of fans. But certainly it, it does seem to be that Ulster will not have to travel to South Africa at any point, especially because the Cheetahs, if, if they face the Cheetahs in the quarterfinals, it would be, Ulster would be the home team because they're the higher seeds. So that yeah. doesn't matter. It's only if they play the sharks. would play the Sharks in the in the semifinals. So we will need to get clarification on that because everything that has been written about it and said about it is to do with the Champions Cup. Yes. So what what we know for sure is the Champions Cup, if a semifinal is held in or is hosted by a South African team, it will be played at a neutral venue in Europe. If, but we don't know yet on the Challenge Cup, so we'll have to we'll have to get clarification on that for sure. Um, I suppose that that brings us on to the Champions Cup knockouts and what is a really really interesting format for the last sixteen ties. We're not going to go back on the the Cardiff issue. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about the fact that six of the last 
16 ties. So six of the eight last 16 ties are repeat pool stage affairs. So Toulouse versus Racing, which is not a repeat fixture. They didn't play each other because they're in the same domestic league, but they're from the same pool. Bordeaux Saracens, Northampton Munster, Bulls Leon, Stormers La Rochelle, Leinster Leicester are all repeat fixtures from the pool stages. And I've just got to ask, how do you have a competition that ends up with six of your eight knockout ties being repeat fixtures from the pool stages? That's just, I, I understand that there is a, a little bit of, you know, history. You know, you've now got Munster trying to get revenge for losing at home to Northampton. You've got uh, Leicester trying to get revenge for losing at home to Leinster. Saracens One of those things gonna, is more likely than the <laughs> Saracens are obviously going to be hurting real bad after what Bordeaux did to them uh, in France a few weeks ago. Or sorry, not even a few weeks ago, last week. Whenever you get to the knockouts, you're wanting to face someone new. You're wanting to have a little bit more diversity. And the format of this competition needs to be looked at because you can't be having that many repeat fixtures. If 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 one happens to slip in there and, you know, it's it's Toulouse Racing, uh, it's not quite so bad. But six of the eight is... It's not good enough. Well, it's what's going to happen if you have four teams out of six progressing from a pool. Like the last 16, I understand that allegedly it makes more money compared to the pool stage fixture. I would argue that it actually damages the brand of your competition to a degree that it's not a like-for-like comparison. Um, But I bang on about how much I hate the European Cup format all the time. I think people are probably sick of it. What I will say is that I am excited to see La Rochelle Stormers again. I'm not that fussed in seeing some of those other games again. Um, most of those other games again. See, uh, But I'll be all challenged cup by then, so I'll not even be watching them. Honestly, no. I'm just going to unfollow just... the Champions Cup Twitter account and just <laughs> go all in on the challenge. It's funny. I have an app on my iPad which gives me score updates. I, to this date, have not uh, signed up for any Challenge Cup results or any kind of notifications on the Challenge Cup and now I'm going to have to basically go and start looking back and seeing how all the teams did because I have no idea. Just uh, get ready, April. Everything's going to be in highlighter yellow. <laughs> for Ulster now, to get, to get back to where, where Ulster are, they're now going on, on this long break for, for the Six Nations starting. They don't have a game again until the Ospreys game on the 18th of February. I imagine a lot of guys, the non-Six Nations guys, are going to go away on holiday. You're going to clear your mind and they're going to reconvene maybe in a week and a half, two weeks' time. Where on earth do Ulster go from here? How do you approach this for trying to get back on the horse in the URC, knowing that your last two games were a hammering at home by Toulouse, which you can write off a little bit because Toulouse are just so good. But then in a game that you had to win, you got thumped by Harlequins. Well, I mean, I would start by saying that if you lose to the Ospreys, then you drop below them in the table. Like, if you're talking about needing to get up for a game, well, there's one. Well, (laughs) by, (laughs) by that logic... Ulster also needed to get up for the Harlequins game in order to qualify for the knockouts of the Champions Cup, and they didn't. No, absolutely. I uh, <laughs> I understand, but like, I'm sorry, what I'm saying is Ulster can't 
muddled through the Six Nations period. Like, these are important games for Ulster because, yes, they're in fourth, and I know that's higher in the table than I predicted they would finish this season. But they could easily fall to 10th or 11th, you know, with a bad string of results. Like, Ulster are fourth, but they're six points behind Leinster. They're only five points ahead of the Lions that are in 11th, so they're fourth, but they're closer to 11th than they are to the top, you know. The goal for the rest of this season has to be, absolutely has to be, to make sure that you're not playing Challenge Cup Rugby still come next autumn. You have to finish in the top eight. Like, so you've got that game away to the Ospreys. Ospreys are getting better results. Um, obviously, the weekend included. And then, you know, you've got Ulster Dragons at home. So you should obviously absolutely be winning that. But they, what they need to get... And then they go to South Africa. So, like, what are you looking for from those fixtures? Two wins? Three wins? Four wins? Like, the difference that it will make to Ulster season, depending on how many games they win out of this next four, is going to be big. I don't think they're going to beat the Stormers. I think they obviously will beat the Dragons. So those other two games, away to the Sharks and away to the Ospreys, become massive. Because you can't keep going through winning a game, losing a game, winning a game, losing a game, as they have done for the last 14 months. Mm. Because... They've the, you know they've got those two uh, derbies still to come at the end of the season. So their URC position, they really need to consolidate their place primarily in the top four, but in a big picture sense, in the champion, you know, in the top eight to make sure you're in the Champions Cup. It's going to be a very interesting I think just Six Nations period like even before we reach April like Ulster have a pivotal because if, if and I think that's maybe also what will determine how they approach the Challenge Cup you know you have to sort of consider where you are in the URC because if Ulster find themselves having had a very good Six Nations period, let's say they beat the Ospreys, they beat the Dragons, they beat the Sharks, and even if they lost to the Stormers, they're probably in a good enough position that you can focus on two fronts. But let's say you do fall to the Ospreys and you do lose to the Sharks and maybe you're only coming out of these next four games with four or five points. All of a sudden, you're just thinking about can we get back into the Champions Cup for next season, which is a massive thing, as you say, and not something that I think we ever thought we would be uh, <laughs> would be talking about with Ulster. But that's the position that they've left themselves in. And if you're talking about from an Ulster perspective, keeping hold of the likes of Kitchoff and sorry, they'll keep hold of Kitchoff, but you know, convincing other players to join you the champions cup or not having champions cup rugby is a massive deterrent for players to come and join you especially if you're trying to lure them from the southern hemisphere you know if you're saying you're going to come and join us but we're going to be heading to georgia for a few games it's not quite the same as we're going to be playing toulouse or Racing or harlequins or bath it's it's going to be a very, very interesting Six Nations period. And, and you just get, I mean, you get less TV money, you get less gate money. So it's yeah. not even so much that players will be turning their nose up saying, I don't want to play in the Challenge Cup. Because some of these players, like 
Some Southern Hemisphere players place so little attention to the Northern Hemisphere that they wouldn't even realise the distinction. But it will, where they will realise the distinction is how much money you can offer them. Mm. I don't know that Ulster are going to be in a position next season to be making offers to uh, big Southern Hemisphere names anyway, if you look at the contractual situation, the financial situation. So it may not matter, but just on a very base level, you don't want to spend a season and a half. You know, you don't want to be in the Challenge Cup at all. You certainly don't want to spend a season and a half in the Challenge Cup. Exactly. And I, I do think that just the the reputational hit as well, you know, being able to say that you are a Champions Cup team every year, like we, you do take it for granted as somebody associated with Ulster Rugby that you get Champions Cup Rugby every year, or Heineken Cup Rugby every year, because it just kind of happens. Ulster have, apart from the year they went into the playoff with the Ospreys, and I do remember one year way back, like mid-2000s, where uh, it was almost a straight shootout between them and Connor at the very end of the season to qualify. But apart from that, Ulster's Champions Cup status at the start of a season has never been in doubt. So it has been something that you kind of take for granted. And now all of a sudden you're looking at Ulster and thinking, are you even guaranteed to be in it next year? And that... As I said, I think that more than winning silverware will concern them in the latter half of the season than depending on how things go. You know, as I said, if they come out of the next four games with 20 points, your mindset shifts because at that stage, you've probably done enough that you're going to get Champions Cup rugby and you can then look at challenging on two fronts. If you're outside the top eight going into April and really needing to find results you're surely going to pivot all your resources into making sure you get Champions Cup rugby next year. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's just whether you get a competitive advantage by taking too many weeks off. Like obviously, you know, if you don't, maybe the fact that they'll be coming back from South Africa changes it. But like if you send a reserve team, I don't really know what a reserve also team would look like at the minute, but if you send a reserve team to Montpellier and get knocked out, then what are you really talking about your next full strength Ulster game being? You know, mm. you would be going to the other end of that, which would be, would be Cardiff. Yeah. At what the middle of April? Like we're sat here in the middle of January, you know. Very true. And I suppose we'll, we'll come on to this next week whenever we're sort of looking ahead to the start of the Six Nations and looking at which Ulster players are being are potentially going to be involved. But you're maybe Ian not <laughs> yeah you're not looking at many of them actually being involved so it's not like they're all going to be playing consistently throughout february and march either it's it's going to be a lot of them are coming back with not a lot of game time so it will be interesting to see whenever we come back uh whenever ulster start to get into what is the business end of the season but plenty of rugby to come before then as i said we have got the six nations starting up again next week whenever we uh, come back for next week's podcast that's what we'll primarily be looking at ulster of course do have some games during the six nations which we will be covering too but uh i think for now maybe best to park ulster for <laughs> for a little bit and just let that uh let the disappointment of the weekend sort of dissipate before we uh we reconvene but 
we will be back next week. We will look ahead to the Six Nations, whether Ireland can uh, put away their own disappointment from the World Cup and uh, get back to winning ways whenever they take on France. Uh, but until then, enjoy your rugby. There's not a lot of it this week. I think every league bar the... Inst uh, Campbell? Inst Campbell. I Osborne? Do, I do apologise. We do have the Schools Cup to look forward to this weekend. Uh, and if you're heading to a game, uh, enjoy. And we will see you again next week. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe discuss the Skulls Cup. We, no, we will discuss the Skulls Cup next week. Uh, but wherever you, uh, you're enjoying your rugby this week, uh, enjoy it. Stay safe in the, in the storms and the bad weather. And we will uh, we'll chat to you again next week.